Anyways, turn to Exodus 19. This is a chapter that we skip over, that we read really quick. We say it's more historical stuff. Yeah, some cool things happen, but there's a whole lot of talking and all that. And today I want you to realize this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. This is one of the biggest chapters in the Bible. This isn't a chapter that's amazing things happen. We do ourselves great harm when we skip it over and say it's just boring stuff. So it's a little long. We're going to read it as uh, we go through it. So let's open with prayer. Before we do that, uh, I was going to say this earlier and I forgot. Um, I wasn't supposed to lead worship today. And I wasn't supposed to do the prayer time today. Rick Barron's was scheduled for today. And I took that. Thanks to his family for being here. Um, And I just, it was a reminder. I wasn't supposed to be up here. uh, Like I said, I meant to say that earlier. And I forgot. Let's pray before I'm not able to anymore. Heavenly Father. This is your word, this is your church, and your church needs your word. We need to be reminded that God is so much greater than we can imagine. We need to be reminded that the glory of the Lord is so much greater than we can imagine. We need to be reminded that meeting with God is like having our worst day and our best day all at the same time. We need to be reminded that Exodus is a redemption story and we desperately need a redemption story. So this morning we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus, our Redeemer. And in his name we pray, amen. Well, in the weekly email uh, this week, uh, hopefully you got it and hopefully you read it. Otherwise, this is all new. And if you don't get it, um, talk to Andrea or Dave and we'll make sure you get on the list. But I asked a question this week. What's the biggest change you've ever seen? And I'm not talking about personal things or things that happen uh, to you, but global change. Not just what's affected you and your family, but monumental change that affects everyone. In your lifetime, what changes have you seen take place that affected the whole world? What comes to mind first? Now we spent the whole, uh, about half of the Sunday school class with the high schoolers talking about it since their lifetime starts about 97. It's a little bit different conversation. Um, But let me ask a follow-up question there along the same line. Was that change symbolized by a specific event? Was there a particular event that came to symbolize global change? Of course, how you answer those two questions, as we saw with the high school class today, the biggest change and symbolic event varies a great deal depending on how old you are. You know, for most of our congregation, uh, it's quite possibly the rise of terrorism as symbolized by 9-11. For most of you, that's probably the biggest worldwide changing event that you've experienced. And yet we do have some, uh, very few, but we have some remaining very wise 
seniors in our congregation who undoubtedly, for them, World War II, nothing could eclipse World War II. And there's a number of symbolic events because that war covered such a long period of time. You could pick the bombing of Pearl Harbor or the atomic bomb in Japan at the end of the war, or D-Day, or V-E Day, Victory in Europe Day, for those of you who haven't read history lately. Huge events. Some of us who grew up in the 60s, you had the Vietnam War, the assassination of JFK, the whole civil rights movement with Martin Luther King. You could pick any one of those. About nine, ten years ago, when my daughter Sarah was in college, she's the one who just had the baby, she's not in college anymore. She was a history major, and she called me about an assignment she had, and it was this assignment, trying to answer the question of the biggest change and most symbolic event in her lifetime, which for her takes you back to the early 80s. And I found my list the other day that we had sort of worked out together that I had thought about and come up with. And this is the, this is the list I came up with. It's about 10 years old. First was the passing of modernity as symbolized by the fall of the Berlin Wall. Second was the power of moral influence, symbolized by the reign of Pope John Paul II. Third was the push for freedom, symbolized by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Fourth was the pervasiveness of globalization, symbolized by protesters in the Muslim world wearing Levi's and Nikes. You know, I just came back from Beijing. There's like McDonald's and Starbucks, like every other block. It looks like Arlington. The rise of terrorism, obviously symbolized by 9-11. And I wrote this 10 years ago. The pulse of technological change symbolized by the dominance of the internet and access to global information. I would change that now to near instantaneous global information. So I don't know what your list would look like, but I'm pretty sure Sarah got an A on that assignment, which is a safe bet because she got an A on almost all of her assignments. But even more intriguing than the momentous events of the past is the fact I don't know what's coming next. What will the next generations look like? What, what events are they going to look to? What will be the big momentous change events in their life? What uh, are your children and your grandchildren? What are going to be the big events? I have a grandchild who's now one day old. What's going to be the major event for his lifetime? And the scary part is I have no idea. And if history is a guide and I talked about a lot of tragedies and violent events war it's likely not to change the, the defining event for their generation could very likely be another tragedy if history is a guide but perhaps not again we don't know if you know tell me that would be awesome you know, I'll come visit you in the asylum, but I'd love to hear. But my early vote, if I had to guess now, I really thought about this. It's going to sound a little odd. 
my early vote would be for massive unnoticed change. Massive unnoticed change. If you stop and think about life since 9-11, you realize it's rare in human history that a single generation comes of age during a time of truly foundational change. From 2002 to 2012, which is the last year we have good historical records, because they're still like writing them for the last few years. Everything happened at warp speed in such a strange way that most people didn't notice the magnitude of these changes. They just accepted them. So much so that one writer, a dean at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, she's called it the wormhole decade, a period when the traditional rules of economic might, social status, and political hierarchy are completely rewritten. She called it the wormhole decade. For those of you who don't know what that means, she says it's as if we were transported into a new universe through a wrinkle in the space-time continuum. So it's like Star Trek come to life. And she says the wormhole decade actually began with 9-11. First major foreign attack on the continental United States in nearly two centuries. Two months later, Goldman Sachs introduced the term BRIC, which stands for Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And the idea that these economies might grow in importance in the 21st century. Ten years later, by 2011, with the European and U.S. economies struggling, the BRIC countries accounted for nearly 20% of the world economy. At the time Goldman Sachs said that, in November of 2001, they accounted for 5% of GDP. That's gross domestic product. That means uh, essentially how much each country contributes to the world economy. It's like incredibly simple definition, but we'll go with it. We don't have a lot of time. So 10 years later, 20%. Five years later, 30%. The most recent thing I find today says the BRIC countries account for 30% of the world economy. That's a change of 25%. Where did that come from? Us. Primarily came from the United States. That's a huge change. 15 years ago, we accounted for 70% of the world's economy. Today, we account for approximately 40%. unnoticed. Most people unaware. We've lost almost half of our world economic power in 15 years. The expansion of the internet has exploded the amount of data and information available. The invention of smartphones and tablets have created a world of unparalleled market transparency, creativity, and collaboration. A 16-year-old in Mumbai has so much data and network access at her fingertips, the same amount that a Fortune 100 CEO would have had in the 1980s. That changes everything. When a 16-year-old has as much data and information as the CEO of a major multinational corporation, 
with the founding of Facebook, Twitter, TED Talks, we've learned about likes, retweets, and views, revolutionizes the way we think about social status, branding, and reputation building. With Uber's founding in 2009, the taxi industries that crisscross the world's capitals have been totally upended in less than five years. The rate and magnitude of societal change is unprecedented in human history. We are in the middle of one of the biggest societal cultural changes ever. And most people are completely unaware. We're halfway through the second decade of the 21st century. Do we understand the depths of these shifts? How they'll impact as people of all incomes, ages, life experiences actually struggle every day with an overwhelming amount of information. The average person in the United States in the 35 to 55 age range spends more time on Facebook every day than they do doing their job. We won't even get to like how much time they spend with actual people, you know, like with bodies and faces and stuff. Think about it. Family members, work colleagues, they struggle to be as present in a face-to-face -face relationship as they are in an online relationship. They are more present in, with email and Facebook and Instagram than they are when they're sitting across the table fighting not to check their latest status. People waiting in line don't talk to each other anymore. I didn't believe this. The other day I was in a line, 10 people, all 10, had their phone out. They're, I was like, this is amazing. Like, they don't even know the other nine people are in line. But are we getting smarter? more fulfilled, better nourished, or just more isolated, distracted, and discontent. It is a strange new world. And some of the most fundamental rules of human organizing have just been rewritten, and I don't think very few people have noticed it. This is gonna be remembered as an era of mushrooming technology and vanishing virtue. As the world's scientific achievements increase, our moral discernment declines. Institutions not too many years ago that were sacred are now scorned. Beliefs that our less sophisticated forefathers revered and respected are relinquished and ridiculed. The last 30 years has opened a noticeable decrease in uh, reverence, and this tendency is nowhere more evident than in religion. Even the church has a grossly inadequate appreciation of who God is and how he should be revered. So what does all this have to do with Moses and Exodus 19? Actually, I think it has a lot to do with it. Not because we're in this time of big change, but our time of huge global monumental change pales in significance to Exodus 19. In this chapter, we're confronted with a moment of massive social, economic, political, and personal change. We've moved from Genesis, which was about a family, to Exodus, which starting in this chapter is focused on a nation of families. And it's going to stay that way all the way through the Old Testament up to the book of Acts. 
And then the focus will shift to a family of nations, which takes us to the return of Christ. So we start with a family, to a nation of families, to a family of nation. That's the scope of change throughout biblical history, past and present and future. And I'm thinking about this because we're at one of those turning points. A life-changing event, a world-changing event, and after being eyewitnesses to a dramatic series of plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, <coughs> the drowning of the Egyptian army, you think the people of Israel could handle just about anything that came their way. But in Exodus 19, God shows up. And we're told that God descends on Mount Sinai in fire. He answers Moses in thunder. We're told that all the people in the camp trembled. The people are more scared of God than they were of the plagues or the Egyptians or the miracles. They're more unsure and uncertain of this unknown God than they were over all the massive change crashing into their lives. You can, again, read this chapter and think it's a boring story without realizing this is one of the great turning points in human history. You can read this chapter and think it's just another Old Testament historical event without realizing this chapter is also one of the great introductions to the gospel. So let's turn to Exodus 19, starting at verse 7. And the first thing that God wants you to know today, just as he wanted them to know back then, is that in the midst of all this turmoil, <coughs> all this upheaval, in the midst of massive change and momentous events, whether noticed or not, that God is holy. God is holy. Turn with me to chapter 19, starting at verse 7. It says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. First of all, I want to start with the last few verses. Look at verses 10 through 13. Here God says, I'm going to come and meet you. And not just you, Moses, I've been meeting with you for a while. But I'm going to come and meet my people. I'm coming for a visit. I'm moving into the neighborhood. And in preparation for my coming, the people need to consecrate themselves. That means they need to 
be set apart and made holy. And in verses 10 to 13, he tells us at least three ways the people of Israel are to consecrate themselves, to be set apart to the Lord and for his service. First, end of verse 10, they're to wash their garments. Second, they're to be ready for the third day. And third, bounds are to be set around, not the people, but around the mountain. So what's going on? First, they're to wash their garments. What do you think this symbolizes? When I was growing up, I had to take a bath every Saturday night, whether I needed it or not. So I'd be presentable for Sunday morning. And I'm pretty sure I needed it because I only took a bath on Saturday night. And when I was growing up, it was that way for everybody. Everybody I knew took a bath once a week. We think that sounds horrible, but 50 years ago, that was the norm. You go back another 50 years before that, and it wasn't that. And it's not that way in most of the world. Once a week is probably still the standard in probably 70% of the world. Why do you think they invented cologne and perfume? But it's not just that mom's going to scrub us up real good on Saturday night so you can be presentable at church on Sunday morning. It's not just that we need to be good and clean. There's something much greater going on. There's something of much bigger significance. God is holy. People are not. God is clean. The people are not. They need to be clean before the Lord in order to come into his presence. And the washing of the garments reminds us of that truth. This is a truth that Moses is going to elaborate repeatedly in the next three books of the Old Testament. To dwell in the presence of the Lord, you must be clean. You must be holy. So the garments must be washed. It's a physical reminder of a spiritual truth. Without holiness, no one can see the Lord. Second, be ready. There's a three-day wait involved. God says, I'm coming, but I'm not coming for another three days. Now, it gives them time to prepare, but also gives them time to reflect on what it meant to have the Lord come visit you. I would imagine there's some nervousness amongst the people of Israel, you know, waiting for the Lord to come meet them. This requires them to focus on the Lord. You see, in verse 15, Moses says during that time, there's to be no marital relations. Why? Because sex is sinful? No, because their focus is to be on the Lord. <coughs> Marriage is a gift from God. But for three days, their focus is to be wholly on the Lord. That's the only thing they're going to be thinking about, getting ready to meet God. Finally, boundaries are set around the mountain. Why? Because the mountain's going to become a tabernacle. There's no tabernacle at this time. Mount Sinai is going to become the tabernacle. God is going to dwell there. And under the laws of the tabernacle, if you could remember, who can enter the Holy of Holies? Only the priest, only the mediator appointed by God, and him only once a year. Otherwise, you go in and you die. Same thing for Mount Sinai. What's the point? God is holy or not. It's an awesome thing to meet with the living God. Over and over again, the holiness of God is being emphasized. It is a serious thing. It is serious business to commune with God. I think that's a really important lesson for Christians today, for the church today. We live in a day and age where professing Christians deal flippantly with God. 
we're casual about our relationship with God. Just listen to how people pray. Most people pray in a way that's very casual. Some people talk to God like he's the beer salesman at Camden Yards. You know, yo, God, can we get some uh, blessing over here? And I shake my head. I just repeat to myself, you're not allowed to hit people. You're not allowed to hit people. You're not allowed to hit people. You think I've only done that once. It's like a mantra. It's, you know. But that type of casual attitude pervades the church in America. Pervades the church in America. We don't take God seriously. You know, I love the passage in the uh, book, Teaching a Stone to Talk by Annie Dillard. If you've never read it, it's wonderful. All her books, she's a wonderful writer. And, uh, but she writes that we've forgotten how danger it is, dangerous it is to come into the presence of, living, of the living God. She writes, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares, and they should lash us to our pews. That's awesome. She's making the point, we've forgotten that God is holy. That God is holy other, different, above, transcendent. And God is reminding us here in Exodus 19 that meeting with God is serious business. He's also reminding us that it's no less serious today than it was back at Mount Sinai. So let's go back now, look at verses 7 through 9, this passage. In this section, we're seeing the covenant confirmed by God and his people through Moses, the mediator. And there's some strange stuff going on here. It's not strange for us to hear God tell Moses to go tell the people his words. Up to this point, God hasn't spoken directly to the people. But in Exodus 20, the next chapter, that changes. And God's going to speak directly to the people. And something very interesting is going to happen. But I'm not going to tell you, so you have to come back next week. However, nothing strange about God saying, Moses, go tell the people what I said. He's been doing that for a while. But what is strange? Look at the end of verses 8 and 9. We're told there Moses goes back up on the mountain and tells God what the people said to his promises, what the people said to his offer of this covenant of grace. Now, if you're like me, hopefully you're not, but if you're like me, you're scratching your head and saying, Why is Moses going back up to the mountain to tell God, who knows everything, what the people said? You think God needs somebody to tell him what the people said? What we're seeing enacted here is a covenant ceremony, a ritual where the representative of one party goes to the other party and says, 
Here's the conditions of the covenant. Here's the promises of the covenant. Here's the stipulations of the covenant. And then the representative of the other party comes back and says, oh, they agree to all those conditions. They agree with all those requirements. And here Moses is the mediator for both parties as he's been appointed by God. It's a covenant making, like a covenant signing ceremony. But notice in verse 8, the people respond to God's gracious offer of a covenant by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And again, if you're like me, thank God you're not, but you're wondering, wait a minute, you haven't heard Exodus 20 yet. It's easy to criticize the children of Israel for being a, a bit too hasty to say, we'll do everything that you say. And I imagine God's like, you're going to regret those words. Because not just Exodus 20, but 21, 22, 23, 24. Man, we got more law coming than we can count. The children of Israel have to embrace this covenant. God offers his covenant. He makes promises. He offers blessings. But the covenant has to be, it must be embraced. They have to embrace this covenant by faith. They have to acknowledge God's lordship. They have to trust in his blessing through the promises that he makes in the covenant. And so when the children of Israel say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, they're confirming that as a people, as a nation, they embrace the blessing and the promises of this covenant that God has made with him. They trust him. They acknowledge him to be who he says he is. They acknowledge him to be the one true God. They're embracing the covenant. That's not something that passed away in the days of the old covenant. Today, in order to have a saving relationship with God, you still have to embrace the covenant. There's all sorts of people uh, that you know, that you're friends with, who believe that God exists. And they may believe he's a God of love and mercy and compassion. They may even believe some of the things the Bible says about him. But they've never embraced him. And in this very passage, Moses is emphasizing that even when God's offering grace, it must be embraced. That'll be the big word for today, embraced. The way the children of Israel do that is fundamentally by faith. They acknowledge God to be the Lord and they trust in his promises and the obedience flows from that. But fundamentally, first and foremost, they embrace him as Lord and then trust in his promises. The covenant must be embraced. I want to pause say, you know, it's a wonderful thing to come to our worship service and hear about God Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But it would be a terrible thing to do that and to come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and never embrace the promises that are set forth by God and about him in his word and in the preaching of the word. If you want to know God savingly, eternally, you must embrace his promises by faith. You have to believe what he says. It's not enough to know about what he says. It's not enough to know about him. You have to embrace the promises of him as your Lord and Savior as given in his word. You must trust in him. And of course, for those of us who live in this age, which is the time after the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that means in, as the membership question goes, trusting in Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. 
God's grace is offered in the gospel demands a human response. And that response is an embrace of God's promises in God's word, and that happens by faith. <coughs> if you want to know him, enjoy him forever, you must embrace him, you must trust him. That truth is as true now as it was all the way back in Exodus 19. You have to get this. God's covenant of grace has to be embraced and it has to be embraced by faith. So the first part of the gospel is to realize that God is holy. Of course, the second part means that man is sinful. Man is sinful or man is not holy. Turn with me to verses 16. I actually skipped a big part of this and didn't even realize it till after I wrote it, so just not going to get to all of it. Starting at verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, here we see God's awesomeness revealed in this tremendous display at Mount Sinai. We're greeted with a scene that looks like a combination of a volcano and a colossal thunderstorm and an earthquake all at the same time. Thunder and lightning, peals of thunder, flashes of lightning explode in the sky. You know, in the scriptures, God manifests his presence uh, to his people with a display of thunder and lightning. And here it is again, thick clouds descend on the top of Mount Sinai. This is the cloud of glory, the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud of God signifying his presence. Now the Hebrews know that God's not confined to Mount Sinai. They know he's not just the God in the clouds, but he's the God over the clouds. And when God manifests himself in the storm, in the fire, in the clouds, in the thunder, in the lightning, the Hebrews know that he's God over all those things. All that naturalistic phenomena is designed to emphasize his sovereignty. And then we're told there's a loud trumpet. And this is a ram's horn, a shofar. It's used to announce the arrival of the king. And it grows louder and louder and more frequently and frequently. And the Lord is drawing near. The king is coming to his people. The people would have understood the significance of the horn sounding. And then smoke and fire are mentioned as part of the manifestations. The smoke is ascending like a furnace, we're told. You have this picture of this gigantic fireplace belching smoke into the air thousands of feet above Mount Sinai. 
It's an incredible scene. It's a volcano and a thunderstorm and a tornado and a hurricane and an earthquake all at the same time. Do you remember the last time God manifested himself to people like this in the books of Moses? Well, he never really did. There's one time he did part of this. Some of this. Probably less than half of this. And that was at Sodom and Gomorrah. The last time he manifested himself in the form of fire and smoke in a furnace. Didn't have the thunder and lightning and the earthquake and that stuff. But Genesis 19 is the last time God revealed himself with this kind of phenomenon. And it was a sign of judgment. And now he comes to enter into a covenant with his people. And he comes not just with a sign of his presence and a sign of great power, but a sign of judgment. And in verse 18, we're told the mountain itself quaked like a volcanic eruption and it felt like an earthquake. And the natural order is shaking under the weight of the presence of the Almighty. And God has made this mountain to be the tabernacle of his presence. It's the Holy of Holies. The physical structure of the mountain is quaking at his presence. And then we read, no wonder, God's people tremble. Wouldn't you tremble? Hey, huh, look outside. There's a tornado and a hurricane and an earthquake and a volcanic eruption. What do you think? I don't know. I'm under the table. Never before and never after did God manifest himself to the gathered assembly of his people with such a spectacular display. It happens one time in human history, in Exodus 19. There's never been a manifestation on this order of God's power given to God's people. Never in the ministry of Joshua, never in the ministry of the judges, never in the time of the kings or the prophets, not in Isaiah's time or Ezekiel's time or Jeremiah's time or Malachi's time or Paul's time or Peter's time or John's time or James' time or Jesus' time. Did God ever manifest himself like he does here? There has never been a physical display in the history of God's redemption like this one. And there never will be again until the Lord Jesus comes on the last day in power and glory. We're going to get it all again. And then you're going to know that Jesus is here. I want you to understand that God is putting an exclamation point on this because he's about to preach. See, now you see how important preaching is. You know? Beginning in Exodus 20, something he wants to get through to us. God is going to be the preacher. It's as if God is saying, what's about to happen is incredibly important. And I don't want you to miss this. So you get a sermon introduction like no sermon introduction you've ever heard. It's vital to understand Exodus 19 so you don't misunderstand Exodus 20. It's vital to understand Exodus 19 lest you misunderstand Exodus 20 all the way through Exodus 24. Exodus 20 gives us the summarization of God's law and the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21 through 24 gives us the elaboration of that law. 
particularly with regard to loving your neighbor. And it's possible to go to all those commandments and all those laws and read them and think, ah, this is how God is telling you how to be saved. This is how God is telling you how you can be declared righteous and justified and accepted by him. But if you understand Exodus 19, you'll never think that about Exodus 20. It's vital for us to understand the grace foundation of God's law in order that we may appreciate the role of God's law in the Christian life. Moses is given words from God which contain both grace and promises, calling us to obedience and responsibility. So in the words that Moses has already spoken to the people, you can look at that last week. You're my treasured possession. You'll be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Words of grace, words of responsibility, words of promise, words of obedience. In this relationship being established between God and Israel, we see God's grace is the foundation of that relationship. But it does require a response of obedience. Obedience is not the way we get the grace of God. Obedience is the lived out demonstration that we've already gotten the grace of God. So no change in salvation, no change in the covenant of grace, no change in our need to get God's grace, but responding to all that grace with our obedience. But there's one big difference moving from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. We're going to jump to the book of Hebrews. We were in Hebrews not that long ago. I'm sure you all remember. We're moving from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. We're no longer at Mount Sinai. Now we come to Mount Zion. And that may not mean much to you, but the difference is great. The difference is huge. <coughs> it carries... Import, enormous uh, importance, enormous weight for us. And let me prove that to you. Turn to Hebrews 12 in your Bibles. We're going from near the beginning of the Bible to near the end of the Bible. And I want to emphasize this as we read this. You must trust. You must trust. You must, by faith, embrace God's covenant of grace. Second, communing with God is serious business. He's sovereign. He's almighty. You don't mess around with him. Third, the great difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is not that God was awesome then and he's not so awesome now. It's not that the scene was fearful then and it's not fearful now. The great difference between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is the mediator. Look what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Stop there. See, the scene is no less awesome. It's not that there's less to be uh, awed about now. What happens in the Bible when angels show up, when they come to visit people? You know, I'm not talking about the hallmark angels that you buy and hang on a Christmas tree. In the Bible, angels are big and scary and they have swords and they often kill people. Don't mess with angels. 
okay, if you have learned nothing else from me, if an angel shows up, be very, very careful, okay? You don't mess with angels. They're great big scary guys with swords. They fight cosmic battles. But one angel shows up in the Bible, and there's abject fear. The angel always has to say what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. And here we're told in Hebrews 12, you're going to be in the midst of innumerable angels. You're going to be surrounded by big, scary angels with swords. It's going to be awesome. What's the difference? Not that God is less awesome. Not that it's a less awesome thing to enter into the presence of God at Mount Zion. What's the difference? Verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abraham. That's the difference. The difference between Mount Zion our Mount Sinai and Mount Zion is that now, by grace, through the work of the Holy Spirit, you have been united to the mediator. The mediator is no longer Moses, a man of great admiration and godliness, but still a sinner. Now the mediator is the God-man, Jesus Christ, perfect in holiness, power, love, and purity. And you're united to him by faith. Whereas in the Old Covenant, meaning the Mosaic Covenant, only the mediator went into the tabernacle or to the mountain and the people stood outside and watched and waited in the new covenant because we're united to the mediator we go with him we go behind the veil with him we go within the veil with him that's awesome mount zion is awesome the innumerable angels are awesome god the judge is awesome but we get to go there boldly confidently because we're united to the mediator. Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Have you trusted in the mediator who can take you into the presence of God and you will not be consumed? That's what Moses is reminding you to do as we read this old covenant passage with new covenant eyes. He's reminding you it's serious business to commune with the living God. He can't be taken flippantly. You've got to embrace his covenant of grace. And how do you embrace it? You embrace it by trusting the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do, you find that the blessings of the covenant of grace are so much yours that you can enter into the presence of the living God and see him and not be consumed. The people of Israel feared the unknown God. But once he met them, and spoke with them and established a saving relationship with them and communicated how they're to do life as a saved people, then they feared this known God. But they changed the definition of fear. See, before they feared God in the sense of being afraid of him. But now that they know him, they fear God in the sense of great awe 
and reverence and respect and before whom we ought to humble ourselves and be grateful for his grace and mercy. So what about you? Are you afraid? Or are you reverent? Are you scared? Or are you awed? I'll end with that question. How do you fear God? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And then I'll close. together our Lord and our God thank you that you have spoken to us by your son open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior teach us the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord the one true mediator between our sinful selves and a holy God thank you that for our sake you made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Grant that we might live in that holiness and righteousness in the name of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. To receive God's blessing together from 1 Thessalonians 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. God bless you. We'll see you next week.